Thanks, Scott. I want to look at verses 7 and 8 of that text again. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. God loves you because he loves you. Not because of anything we've done, but God simply loves us because in his sovereign will, he has chosen to love us. That's good news. John, the beloved disciple, at least according to his own description in his gospel, I'm the beloved disciple, uh, writes in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, 7 to 11, a wonderful explanation of the gospel, the good news of God's love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 11, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, or as some translations say, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the good news of the gospel. God loves us because he loves us, and he's shown us the full extent of his love, that while we were sinners, he sent his son, who was without sin, here to this earth to pay the price for our sins with his death on a cross as the perfect sacrifice so that our sins could be atoned for. And so ultimately, we might be in a right relationship with God if we simply believe in him. Of course, the relationship is always two ways, isn't it? It takes two people to to be in a relationship. Two people have to work in order to be in a relationship. And we know from Scripture that God initiates the relationship that we have with him. He's the one who first loved us. And so we respond to God's love in faith. And we seek to grow in that love relationship. Because love, as we read just a moment ago, comes from God. And the more we grow in our relationship with God, the more loving we will be as people here today. So in order for us to be more loving, we need to draw near to God. We need to grow in our relationship with God. But how do we grow in our relationship with God exactly? Well, any relationship requires time, right? You have to spend time with the person if you want to grow in a relationship with them. You need to communicate with them. You need to talk with them. And of course, we use prayer in order to talk with God. As I shared last Sunday, Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, has this wonderful definition um, from his book called Prayer of Prayer. Prayer is a personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. Prayer is a personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. Prayer is ultimately answering speech. God has initiated creation. He's created us, and God is the one who initiates this love relationship with us, and so we respond to God's initiation by praying to him with the knowledge that that God is there and as we look at the cross with the knowledge that God loves us and he wants us to be in a loving relationship with him. So when we pray, what do we tend to talk about? How much do we pray? How much time do we spend praying? The Pew Forum Research Center tells us that 55% of Americans pray daily. 
It also tells us that uh, 79% of Protestant evangelicals, which would be us, we, 79% of us pray daily, so we're better than the average American. That's good to know. But what do we tend to pray about exactly? What guides our prayers? What do we tend to talk to God about? Do we only come to God with prayers of supplication saying, Lord, I need this, I need that. Could you take care of this, please? Or do we spend time in prayer like King David did with prayers of confession? As we continue our sermon series on prayers that guide us, you know, we've been looking at some key prayers that are throughout the scriptures, and we began Ash Wednesday with the prayer of confession that we find in Psalm 51. If you've never read Psalm 51, I would encourage you to to go home and read that. It's a beautiful prayer of confession that King David offers up to God. And the fact is that we're sinners, and in order to be made right with God, we, we need to confess our sins. We need to be cleansed, and as Presbyterians, we get this because, well, we believe in the total depravity of man. We, we recognize that we're all sinners, you know, fallen, uh, and we need God's help to even draw near to God. And so every time we gather together in corporate worship, we have a time of, of confession, a prayer of confession, usually at the front end of one of our worship services, so we might come to God and, and empty out our hearts to him and confess our sins to him so that we might be cleansed so we might worship him aright and anew. As we pray prayers of confession, ultimately that should move us to prayers of thanksgiving, right? Thankful for for God's amazing love. And as we talked about just last Sunday, Jonah has a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving that he prays in the belly of a fish. In the midst of great darkness, in the midst of, of troubled times, Jonah offers a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving, knowing that salvation comes from the Lord. As we pointed out last week in John chapter 10, nothing can, can take that salvation away. We are held in the very palm of Jesus' hand. And so we come to God with thanksgiving, thanking him for his love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And prayers of thanksgiving actually help bring light in the midst of dark times. They remind us of God's constant presence. Is our prayer life should include prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, and prayers of supplication. Where we pour out our hearts to God and we do ask God for, for what we need from him. Did you know that Jesus actually prayed a prayer of supplication for all of us here today? He asked the Father to give us something specific. To find out what that is, I would encourage you to turn in your pew Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired John to put pen to paper so that we might have the words of Jesus today, so that we might read what it was he prayed for all of us. Although we pray that as we read these words this morning that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you that the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. John chapter 17, beginning with verse 20, listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me." 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even, the world, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look at those first two verses of Jesus' prayer for all of us today. John 17, 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. We're the ones who are going to believe in Jesus because of the words of the apostles and their testimony. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer for us is that we may be one, we might be united as one body in his name. Isn't that an interesting prayer? Of all the things Jesus could pray for, he prays for our unity. Why not our health, our wealth, or our prosperity? I mean, if you're gonna start a religious movement, it would seem like if you could guarantee great wealth and great health, then you'd have a lot of people follow you, right? But that's not what Jesus prays. Jesus prays for our unity. Why not our wealth? Well, Jesus knows that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In fact, previously in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter six, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew six, verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus knew that Well, the love of money is a great temptation for for anyone. And so if he gave us all wealth, then we might seek to serve money rather than him. And he knew that wouldn't be good for us. And so he prays for our unity. But why our unity? Why this emphasis on unity exactly? Well, Jesus was a Jew. And he knew that most of his earliest followers were Jews. And as Scott read just a moment ago in Deuteronomy chapter seven, the people of Israel, before they come into the promised land, are told to separate themselves. They're not supposed to get connected to the Jebusites or the Herbicites or whatever the names were of all those people and the Parasites, you know. These are not good people. Don't, Don't get connected to them because they've got foreign gods. And if you... Get married to them, then you'll start following their foreign gods and and that'll turn your heart away from me. And so God told the people of Israel, you are my chosen people, set apart, so remain separate. And they proudly live their lives as separate people. But now Jesus is bringing this wonderful message of, of inclusion. He's inviting everyone to come and follow him, that the message of grace that he brings, his salvation, is for anyone who will believe, Jew and non-Jew alike, Jew and Gentile as well. I also believe Jesus is praying for unity, though, that he, because he knew that not only would Jews have a hard time welcoming Gentiles or non-Jews into their community or their fellowship, but he knew that among ourselves, as Gentiles, as non-Jews, we would probably have a hard time getting along all the time, Amen. Did you know that there are over 30,000 denominations according to the World Christian Encyclopedia? 33,000 denominations, over 33,000 denominations. I'm not sure why everyone just doesn't become Presbyterian. It'd be a lot easier. We're the best, right? No, I'm just kidding, of course. 
here in the United States, the largest denomination is actually the Roman Catholic uh, denomination. And then the next to that is the Baptist across the street. And then next to that group, the third largest denomination, ironically, is actually non-denominational churches. So uh, it's a segment of the church that doesn't claim a denomination. And, and non-denominational churches, they all operate autonomously without a, a hierarchical structure, uh, any kind of accountability, which can be dangerous. If you get the wrong leader in a non-denominational church, it can be hard uh, because if they make some poor choices, there's no checks and balances to make sure that they uh, operate according to God's word. Isn't it funny, though, that the third largest segment is the non-denominational? Uh, it's just so many denominations, 33,000. Which reminds me of the story that uh, Emo Phillips tells, the comedian Emo Phillips tells. One day he was walking in San Francisco along the Golden Gate Bridge and he saw a man who was about to, to jump off the bridge and he said, stop, don't do it, God loves you. The man paused for a moment and Emo Phillips saw this opportunity and so he stepped a little bit closer and he says, do you believe in God? The man turned back and said, well, yes, I do. He said, great, are you, are you Jewish, are you Christian, or are you Muslim? And the man said, well, I'm Christian. And Emo Phillips, seeing a point of connection, so am I. And he took a step closer to this man. He said, well, tell me, are you Roman Catholic or are you Protestant? He said, well, I'm Protestant. And Emo Phillips said, great, so am I. Are you Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran? And the man said, well, well I'm Baptist. And Emo Phillips said, so am I. Are you Northern Baptist or are you Southern Baptist? I'm Northern Baptist. Emo Phillips said, so am I, all the while drawing closer to this man, making a point of connection. He said, are you Northern Conservative Baptist or are you Northern Liberal Baptist? <laughs> I mean, so I'm Northern uh, Conservative Baptist. Emo Phillips said, oh, so am I. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist East region? I mean, so I'm Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. Emo Phillips, what are the chances? So am I. By this point, Emo has his arm around this man who was previously going to kill himself and jump off the bridge, and he puts his arm around him like a brother, and he says, so tell me, are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1812 or Northern Conservative Baptist uh, Conservative uh, Council of 1929? The man says, well, I'm actually Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1929. He says, oh, well, that's the case. Die, you heretic! That didn't really happen. That's just a joke. <laughs> Emo's a comedian. But it highlights the fact that sometimes we can major in the minors, right? We can make a big deal about nothing as the church today. Father of the church, St. Augustine, from the fourth century, Bishop of Hippo, is often credited for saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, Love. When we major in the minors, we tend to be divided, but if we will focus on the main thing, the essentials of our faith, then we will be united in love. And the essential of our faith is, was Jesus. In 2013, our four Amarillo partnership with the four downtown Protestant churches, First Baptist Church, Central Church of Christ, First Presbyterian Church, and Polk Street United Methodist Church, we've got a logo here to show you, maybe you've seen this around town, our partnership actually was awarded Headliner of the Year Award by Amarillo Globe News. And we were all grateful to, to win an award. Who doesn't like to win an award? We were humbled by that. And, and we know we've all enjoyed partnering together in mission here locally, whether it's leading a vacation Bible school at San Jacinto Elementary or volunteering with Heal the City together or as we did a few summers ago, refurbishing the apartments for the Downtown Women's Center just across from our parking lot and, and helping furnish some of those apartments. We were all so grateful to, to be able to work together because we know that we're better together. 
And yet as I told a room full of Amarillo pastors a few months after winning this award, it should not be headline news that four churches decided to work together. We should always be working together, right? We shouldn't be separated. We shouldn't major in the minors. Did you know that Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in the week here in the United States? On Sunday mornings at 11 a.m., Asians tend to gather with Asians to worship God. African Americans tend to gather with African Americans to worship God. Hispanics tend to gather with Hispanics to worship God. Caucasians tend to gather together with Caucasians to worship God. And we become more segregated than God ever intended us to be. It's interesting, though, if you go overseas, particularly if you go to a country where the church is persecuted, you'll see they never talk about denominations. In fact, in your bulletin this morning, there's a nice uh, little pamphlet about how you can be praying for the persecuted church. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Cuba where the church is being persecuted. It's on the world watch list. And I was doing door-to-door evangelism with um, Pentecostals from Cuba and Baptists from Cuba, and here I was, an American Presbyterian, now, I can tell you our worship styles are very different, right? I mean, we're kind of frozen chosen. The Pentecostals and Baptists, particularly in Cuba, are kind of all over the place. But you know what? We've got the same message. It's about God's love that we find in Jesus Christ. We are better together. And I believe that the, the church is united. Jesus' prayer is answered. And we will humble ourselves and keep our minds and eyes on the main thing. We focus on what unites us when we focus on Jesus. Jesus' prayer for unity is answered when we remain focused on him. If we remain focused on Jesus, we will be more humble, less judgmental, and ultimately more obedient. For as we focus on Jesus and and what he's done for us with his death on a cross, I don't know about you, but it it humbles me to think that God would, would love me so much. I love the way that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 articulates the good news of the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. For in the book of Galatians, Paul writes that cursed is he who's hung on a tree. It's a quote from Deuteronomy. Jesus became a curse for us with his death on a cross even though he had no sin so that we might become and may be made righteous in God's eyes through Christ's sacrifice. That's amazing. It's amazing and it's humbling to think that God loves us so much. It's humbling to realize that, well, that God would, would love us so much that he would send his only son to suffer and to die for us. As I stand at the foot of cross, I can see that the ground is truly leveled. There's no one of us who are without sin. We're all sinners in need of his grace. It's the gospel is humbling as we focus on Jesus and the cross. We're humbled and we're less judgmental because I'm in no position to judge anyone because we're all sinners. I'm not better than anybody else. Now that doesn't mean that we turn our eyes away from sin or ignore sin. Sin is sin. The Ten Commandments still apply. It's not good to have idols. It's not good to murder. It's not good to steal. It's not good to commit adultery or to covet. Those are sins. If we read the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus are still true. Yes, we need to abide by these words, but we, when we see someone sin, we, we don't need to stand in arrogant judgment of them. We should remain humble. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, as a part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, verses one to five, he says, judge not that you not be judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I don't know about you, but I've got enough sin in my life, I don't need to worry about your sin, right? I need to confess my sins. I need to take the log out of of my eye before I start looking for specks in other people's eyes. Now, whenever we do sin, we need to confess our sins to God and and remember his grace and forgiveness and, and let him offer us that cleansing love. And if we've ever sinned against a person specifically, we need to, we need to come to them with an apology. We need to, to seek to be reconciled and, and, and offer our apology so that we might be forgiven and, and might be reconciled to them. I love what steps eight and nine of the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, says. It says, step eight, make a list of all persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends with all. Step nine, make direct amends, direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when t- to do so would injure them or others. That last phrase is real important, except when to do so would injure them or others. Let's say as you're doing kind of a personal inventory of your own sin and recognizing that you know, you've, you've messed up and you go, oh, you know, I've sinned against maybe Susan. And you were thinking, oh, you know, I, I sinned because I gossiped about her. Oh, that's a horrible thing, right? Well, if she doesn't know you've gossiped about her, it's probably not a good thing to go tell her and say, hey, I've been gossiping about you. I hope you forgive me. That's just going to make her upset, right? That's going to hurt her, right? So you want to do this wisely and think about this and say, you know, just, are they aware of that? And Lord, please forgive me against you alone have I sinned as we read in Psalm 51. And whenever we are told and asked for forgiveness, we need to offer it knowing that we have also been forgiven by Christ. This is we approach this, we want to do it with the golden rule in mind, treating others the way we would like to be treated. Now as a pastor and as elders or deacons or anyone who's a parent, there are times when another person's sin is going to be brought to our attention and we have to deal with that. We, we have to address that. We know that from the scriptures that sin impacts the entire body and it, so it's not good for someone to have unrepentant sin or unconfessed sin. And so there are times when we, when we have to address someone else's sin and I don't ever like doing that, but sometimes you've got to do it. Well, Paul gives us some instruction in Galatians chapter six exactly how we ought to do that. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When someone comes to us with a sin, we, we need to seek to restore that person with a spirit of gentleness. As Jesus did in John chapter eight, when the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, he doesn't condemn her. He says, I do not condemn you. But he doesn't condone her. He says, go and sin no more. When I've had these instances as a pastor, I've had to talk to someone directly about sin. I say, look, I, I hate to hear that this has happened. and You need to know that God forgives you, but, but we can't continue to do this. Now, if you have someone who sins against you directly and you feel like you have to approach them, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, we should go to them one-on-one, right, and talk to them about it. And, and all the while, the hope is that they'll confess their sins and seek repentance, and then there can be reconciliation, but if they don't hear that, if they're not willing to recognize that, then you're supposed to take two, more, two or more people so that they will be turned by the counsel of two or more. And so you bring a couple more people and talk to them and hopefully they'll hear that. But if they don't hear that, then you take it to the church. All the while hoping that there will be confession, repentance, and restoration. He says, as I look at Jesus, I'm humbled by what he did for me. I'm less judgmental. And ultimately, we are moved to be more obedient. As we look at the cross of Christ, we can see that Jesus paid the price for our sins at great cost to himself. And in gratitude for what God has done for us, I want to bring all glory and honor to him. I want to live a life that reflects his love 
by treating others the way I would like to be treated, by loving my neighbor as myself, by bearing fruits of the Spirit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I believe Jesus prayed for our unity because Jesus knew that our unity, the unity of his followers, would be the greatest testimony that he is from the Father. As others see us treating one another with with unconditional, sacrificial love as God has treated us, as we humbly, not judgmentally, but humbly love each other, then others will take notice at our unity. In fact, Jesus says, on that same night that he's betrayed to his disciples, in John 14, verse 12, he says this to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. How could we, as fallen human beings, do even greater works than Jesus? While Jesus was here on this earth, he was one man at one place at one time, but now that he's ascended to heaven, The Holy Spirit has come to dwell within each one of us and so now we are many people in many places at many times but if we'll remain united in his love and his purpose and mission we can accomplish great things for the sake of his kingdom. As I have found that when the body of Christ is united it can transform a city, it can transform a nation like they're doing in Cuba today. Yes, Jesus prays that we might be united because he knows that will be the greatest witness to the world that he is from the Father. And we help answer this prayer when we will humble ourselves and keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we recognize the cross of Christ and what he's done for us and it humbles us, it makes us less judgmental and ultimately it makes us more obedient to the glory of his name. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who loves us so much that you would send your son to die for us. And as Jesus prayed, Lord, we pray that we might be united in him. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to be one body that seeks to bring all glory and honor to you. That we'd keep our eyes and minds focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, O Lord. And as we do so, we will be humbled by your great love. We will be less judgmental of others. And ultimately, we will be more obedient to you. Oh God, help us to be united as you've called us to be. Your son's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. In response to God's word, let's continue our worship by giving God's tithes and our offerings this morning.